The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Did you know that Japanese samurai love to play Bloody Mary? Then we travel to Kirtland, Ohio, a town that was personally cursed by Joseph Smith. Whether or not you believe in the curse is up to you. But everyone has to agree that the day the red fog rolled into town, evil came with it. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I'm a little sleepy, so I'm drinking a Diet Pepsi. I get two of these a day. Mm-mm-mm. Probably should have drank it before I record the podcast, but this life. And you know what's also life? You know who else is living? One of our legacy Patreons, I hope he's still alive, Hunter McCarthy. Everyone give a round of applause to Hunter McCarthy. He's alive. He's showing that his heart is beating. He's pulling in an x-ray machine and sonograms and stuff like that. I'm running out of ways to introduce you guys. Hunter, you're going to be amateur alive. Hunter, you're our captain, our pilot this episode. If you can't support the Patreon, I totally understand. Just help spread the word about the show. Really, really helps out a lot. Hunter, I'm going to toss you the oars to the Dead Rabbit rowboat. We are going to take a little journey across the Pacific Ocean. We are headed out to ancient Japan. So we're rowing on out. Hunter is standing on the bow like George Washington. So this first story is actually a recommendation from a longtime listener of the show, Fabio. He sent a ton of stuff to the show, so really, really appreciate it, Fabio. So when we get to the shores of Japan, it's old-timey Japan. And we're all wearing, like, awesome samurai garb. So, like, the plated armor, and we got, like, the katana and the little knife, and we're, like, looking out for ninjas and stuff like that. We don't see any ninjas. But we're kind of disappointed in that because we really wanted to see a ninja. We're like, yeah, sure, we're samurai and all, but, you know, ninjas are way cooler. We're being led into this big house. There's this other samurai guy. He's like, hey, guys, come over here. You're, you're, you're from the tour group. Tour groups haven't been invented yet. Because it's like 1599 AD, but come on over here, guys. He leads us into this spooky house, and it has three rooms. It might have more than that. It might not just be built for this. It might have ten rooms, but we're only going to use three rooms. What we're about to engage in is the practice known as Hayuk Monogatari Kai Dakankai. That's exactly how you pronounce it. Don't check. Don't double-check that. Do not put that into Google pronunciation. I got it right. This was an old game that actually started off with the samurai class in old-timey Japan. We actually, the earliest reference people can find of it is in 1660. The idea was this. And this is a game you can play at home as well. If If you're a samurai, or even if you're not a samurai, what you do is you have three rooms. The first room, you gather there with your friends. You get as many friends as you want who want to engage in this. Pre or post-COVID, okay? You might not want to do it right now, but you have a bunch of people in one room. And then the second room, you have nothing. 
And then in the third room, you have 100 candles. I should also say this game is not safe to play on many levels. The first one being unattended flame. Unattended 100 candles. You have three rooms. So the samurai would all sit in the first room and they'd be like, dude, you want to hear a scary story? And everyone turns and he goes, once upon a time, <laughs> once upon a time, that's a, that's a fairy tale. And if we were like, oh no, how are they ever get Rumpelstiltskin's gold? No, they would say that the scary stories were <laughs> totally ruined the immersion, but the scary stories, the samurai would sit there and go, once upon a, damn it, not once upon a time. <laughs> the samurai would go, hey guys, this is what happened. Once there was this villager who was like walking through the woods and then like a goblin bit him. And people were like, oh, that's really spooky. And they're rolling their eyes. They're like, I always let that guy start because he always tells the lamest stories. And then the storyteller, whoever told the first scary story. Oh, oh, no, I should say this too. This has to take place. <laughs> I forgot this detail. <laughs> this episode's starting getting off to a great start. You have to wait to the darkest part of night. So you can't be doing this at three in the afternoon. So it's like two in the morning. I guess I should have started off. Spooky, two in the morning. There's an owl uh, screeching. Are there owls in Japan? There's one now screeching. The wind. <sighs> Wooden shoes. Clock, 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 clock on uh, whatever Japanese house floors are made out of. I'm going to assume wood, but their walls are made of paper, so I really shouldn't assume anything. Lop, lop, lop. Where was I going? With- oh, yeah, so <laughs> Now it's become Architectural Digest podcast. You have the samurai tells a scary story. And everyone goes, oh man, that was super scary. And then the samurai who tells the first scary story, it's the darkest time of night, has to leave the room with his fellow samurai, walk through the empty room, get to the room. Damn it, I forgot another detail. (laughs) They're going to get to the room with the candles. And in the room with the candles, I left this part out too, there's a mirror on a table. So you have a third room... With a mirror on a table, 100 candles. Samurai, who tells a scary story, walks through the empty room, into the room with all the candles, has to snuff out a candle, and then stare into the mirror for a bit. There's no specified time period, but it's more than just a glance. Then he walks back through the empty room to rejoin his fellow soldiers. So you can see where this is going. This is actually a really interesting idea. They played this game. It was a test of bravery, because... As the night wore on, you have to tell 100 stories. Not one person. Each person tells a different story. And it has to be a true story of something that they encountered that was paranormal or grim, very dark story. Or a story that they had gathered from their countrymen. They're they're like killing peasants, and the peasants are like, oh, here's a scary story for you. The time you showed up and murdered my family. The samurai's like, ha, ha, ha. I can't wait to tell that story later. Chop. The samurais are going out when they're not oppressing the people, when they're not oppressing the peasantry. They're gathering spooky stories. So you would go and they would um, snuff out the candles. So as the night progressed, the room would get darker and darker and you'd have to look in that mirror. And we all know it's kind of a scientific fact that if you look into a mirror in low light, it will cause hallucinations. By the time you get to like story 80... You're super spooked out to even walk through that second room. See, that second room supposed to be a passageway between the living and the damned. The room of the lights and the candles are slowly going out. 
and the stories get progressively scarier, or they just kind of start to weigh on your conscience. The last 20 stories might not have been that scary, but story 67, oh, that, that didn't sit well with you. You're still thinking about that one. The storyteller is the one who always has to go put out the candle. They said most of these games ended at story 99. Because people were too scared to tell that last story. It was considered a test of bravery among the samurai class. In 1660, there was a nursery story written about this. The tradition had already existed, but that's when it went mainstream. There was a nursery story, and the samurai, the last samurai who was walking through the house, he saw like a spooky hand coming at him in the light of the last candle, and he turned around with his samurai sword. So why you shouldn't play these games with people who are fully armed and most likely have PTSD. He sees this spooky hand coming at him from the darkness, and he swings around with his samurai sword to cut the hand off, and it was a spider. He didn't cut the spider. He, like, cut the webbing and then, I don't know, fell in the flame and burned up. I added that last detail, but it would be cool. So that was, like, a story you would tell little kids to make them not afraid. Not afraid of... Not afraid of playing a game that samurai are playing. They're like, now, I told you, Billy, don't play that game that you didn't know existed until you read the story. They're like, what? It's a weird warning. But because it became super popular, it actually drifted down to the lower classes, and they began playing it. The popular, because you had to come up with these stories. People started to scour the land looking for the scariest stories to tell. Eventually, there was a book published. There's a little bit of a. Um, oh, and to be fair, I'm looking at my notes. They didn't use candles, they used andons, because I'm sure I would have gotten several comments on that. It's a Japanese light, but it's basically a candle in a paper box. So in 1677, there was actually a book published called. 100 Tales of Many Countries. And these were stories from that had been gathered around the world. Spooky tales to scare people. People couldn't find enough stories to tell, so they had to start selling books, supplements, like D&D supplements to take care of it. You can play this game today. I've seen variations of it where you can do it in one room. No, you would need two rooms at least. You need to have one room, and you don't need the, the second room with the passageway they said you can do it with one room i guess you could do it with one room and just the candles in that room whether or not it's one room 10 rooms three rooms the traditional three rooms you can play this game the problem is is i was not able to find any cleansing ritual for it any sort of ritual you're doing like that where you're playing with fire literally and that's why i say that's the other problem wrong with it one is you actually have open flame unattended open flame but the other one is you're kind of in, you're telling these creepy stories. You're moving through a passageway. You're going to a room where there's no life. There's a mirror that you're going to stare into. The light level is dropping. You're invoking things. You're invoking. You're you're doing a ritual that's trying to invoke something. Whether it's just fear, human fear, or something even darker than that. There's no banishing ritual. There's no cleansing ritual. So it seems fairly dangerous from a metaphysical aspect, and then just from a regular physical aspect with all the unattended flame but it is a game you can play if you're willing to take both of those risks try it i think also you might want to pare down the stories 100 stories is a lot because you know you're going to get that one guy who starts describing that novel he's been writing since junior high he's like first off let me describe the world let me do the world building you know like ah he's like the unicorns and the vampires have been at war for a thousand years before the story you're like is it spooky? He's like, yeah, yeah, kind of. So maybe cut it down to like 50 stories 
or 20 <laughs> because it, the less stories you have the less candles you have so it's safer that way but if you feel like playing it there you go um the samurai did it and you could do it too i don't recommend doing it i don't recommend doing it in a paper house but if you feel like you wanted to invoke a dark spirit by telling spooky stories there you go Hunter, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the Carpenter Copter. We're leaving behind Japan before the spooky, spooky ghosts crawl out of the mirror. We are headed out to Kirtland, Ohio. <laughs> Helicopter's flying, and I'm just sitting there, and all of a sudden I have long black hair. <laughs> you're like, that's weird, Jason. Where'd that long black hair come from? How come you're a 13-year-old girl all of a sudden? And I'm just sitting there in like a white dress, and like black hair's covering my face. And you're waiting for a jump scare, but there's not. There's not. I just got cursed by it. Goes down there. I turn around. I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm a 13 year old girl for the rest of this episode. I am a what are they called? Like a yokai. Um, I looked in the mirror too long. I told 101 stories. I broke it. So this is how I am for the rest of the episode. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter because I can still tell this story. Although I probably will start killing people at some point. This was actually recommended to me by Brew via gmail he's been sending me a bunch of stuff lately thank you very much for the recommendation brew very very interesting story now we've been to kirtland ohio before a long time ago most of you guys may not remember longtime listeners of the show should remember it as the home of the melon heads uh just monster people of little dudes of big melon heads they were supposed to be the scientific experiment there's different origin stories for them but hunter fly the carpenter copter over those melon heads they're chasing us they're not going to catch up to us We're specifically going to Kirtland, Ohio. The year is 1831. We all hop out of the Carpenter Copter. And as we're getting out there, we see like wagons. Old-timey wagons. There's no other kind of wagon. There's no new-timey wagon. There's wagons and horses and stuff like that. And we see a man, and he jumps off the wagon, and he goes, Everybody, dudes, this is Zion. And everyone starts clapping. And we're just like standing there. We're like, what? And I tap you on the shoulder, and I'm like, that man is Joseph Smith. And you're like, okay. okay. It's so weird. They just jumped off and declared this place as Zion. Zion is the, I'm trying to think of a way to, to sum it up. It's basically the holy city or the promised land that will be rebuilt um, in Christianity. Also, um, if you're not a big fan of the Christian faith, it's from the Matrix. So, you know, either one. It's supposed to be this promised land. And in Latter-day Saint faith, the promised land is supposed to be in the United States. So when Joseph Smith, 1831, he had just really got the Mormon church started up. And they had left New York, they had come to Kirtland, Ohio, and he goes, this is it, guys. This is it. This is the place we're all going to chill on. Maybe he actually didn't declare it Zion. (laughs) Actually, now that I'm looking at my notes, he just said it was a really dope town. He might not have declared it was Zion. I actually think he said Zion was in Mississippi somewhere. I used to... I never was a follower of the Latter-day Saints, but I dated a lot of Mormon girls, so I used to know more about that stuff. You know, just, just to get a date. But anyways, it doesn't matter. This is actually, this is a very important part to Latter-day Saint tradition, because this is where the very first temple was built. On 1836, they held the dedication for this temple, and Joseph Smith goes, here it is, this is Zion, and the guy's like, no, no, that's that's the other place. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, this is just a really cool city. And then, pillars of fire. 
appeared in the sky. Some samurais were playing that game up on a cloud. Pillars of fire appeared in the sky. Angels started flying around. Bunch of people who were there to watch the dedication of the church. That's all they came out to see. But they get to see angels and fire. It's way better. It's way better than the church dedication. But what happens is, and this happens very common with religions, especially new religions. They get persecuted. People don't understand what it is. The stuff seems too wacky. The beliefs seem too far out of there. Or they seem heresy. I think I'm downplaying it. They seem like they're outright heresy. So in this church, the Mormons were persecuted. The city actually began to take the Mormons' property and then expelled them to the outskirts of town, to a place called Penitentiary Glen, which was actually just a giant ditch. They did it during the wintertime. A bunch of the Mormons died. They had no shelter. They couldn't stay warm. They froze to death. Joseph Smith says we gotta leave, because this town's obviously not accepting of us. They did murder a bunch of us by making us sleep in the cold. So he packs up his followers, and they leave town. But as he's leaving town, he actually places a curse on Kirtland, Ohio. This was the place he was supposed to... His first temple was built here. This is where he was supposed to rule from on high and spread the word of the Latter-day Saints. He's like, we're out, guys. We're leaving this town. We're out. And we built that really cool church. Let's get rid of it. So we're not going to let anyone else use it. So they go to set it on fire before they leave. And the church won't burn. No matter how hard they try. I don't know how hard they try. Joseph Smith's like just kind of singeing the corner of it. He's like, oh no, it won't burn. Oh well. They're trying to burn the church down. Burn down the temple. But all of like the flames are going. (laughs) All the flames, like everything they set on fire is blowing away. And it lands on a Methodist church next door. Torches it. (laughs) Completely burns it to the ground. At that point, Joseph Smith's like, okay, we we gotta leave. Like, okay, we're done. But there's still a curse on this town. Now, that curse story has been around for decades, or really a century at this point. People in the town still think that it's cursed. It's a very small town. It has a population of about 7,000 people. But you'll see reports of, like, ghost stories, weird crimes. Some kids were skinny dipping, and this woman goes, Stop skinny dipping! And their kids are like, What are you going to do about it? She threw dynamite into the lake. (laughs) I mean, it's basically like Derry from the It novel. It's just a bunch of weird people there. Sorry, Kirtland, Ohio listeners, but you guys know what I'm talking about. All of those were just weird anecdotes. People heard about this curse. Uh, The Mormon church actually has moved back in. There's like four different denominations in the area. Um, It's a thriving center because that is their first temple. They were able to kind of reclaim that land. But whether or not you believe in the curse, you knew something was different the day that the red fog rolled into town. There's a lot of different sects of the Latter-day Saints. One of them is the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in the 1980s, there was a man named Jeffrey Lundgren. He was a member of that church. And it's a more liberal, has a more liberal view of the text. So they allow women ministers, they, you know, they preach about gay rights and things like that. So you had that, that's going to cause a little bit of an issue with some of the people who are more conservative in the church. And that's just the nature of everything. And that was Jeffrey Lundgren. He was actually had a more conservative view of how the church should be run. But for now, he's a member of the RLDS. And he actually works at the Kirtland Temple, that original temple. Now it's run by the RLDS. 
and he does tours through the temple. I don't know how big the temple is. He's just like, here's a room. Okay, we're done. Here's a pew. But anyways, he gives tours, and he also teaches Bible study classes. So even though he doesn't agree with everything, he agrees with most of it, and it's a job. And it's a way for him to find like souls. Because not everyone agrees with these new views of the RLDS. So during his Bible study classes, he's actually kind of talking to people, and he's like, hey, yeah, um, that's that, that stuff they're talking about is cool and all, but, you know, I have a different interpretation. People go, oh, that's interesting. I'm just on the tour group, but tell me your interpretation. He also, because that's just one thing, and that's fine, freedom of speech, he also began embezzling money. There's no such thing as freedom of money. You don't have the right to just take other people's money. The Kirtland Church finds out that he embezzled between twenty-five to forty thousand dollars. So they're like, "We should have caught you. We should have caught you with the twenty-five thousand, but we didn't. You might have hit forty thousand. They fire him. He's like, "Fine, whatever. Your church is kind of lame." And I got like twenty people to come with me. Nineteen eighty-seven. Now, this is where we get classic cult behavior. This is where we get classic cult behavior. This is just like the Ant Hill kids. This is like Jonestown. Him and his followers rent this large farmhouse. And almost all of them live in it. There's about 20 people living in the farmhouse. They got this big barn, probably a couple of cows and chickens running around. One of the things is you have to give the money to Jeffrey. Very, very common thing. You go out, you work, but you sign your paychecks over to Jeffrey Lundgren. You also got to call him dad, which is just weird. Everyone's doing this. Everyone's following the program, except for one family. But they're pretty devout, so Jeffrey kind of lets it slide. They don't live at the farmhouse, and they're not giving him all of their money. Because you have this member named Dennis Avery, and he goes, listen, I got three kids. Like, I'm going to give you a bunch of my money, but I can't give you all of it. And he sold his house. I think he lived in Mississippi or Missouri. He sold his house to move to Ohio to be a part of this church, to be a part of Jeffrey's church. And he kept some of the money for himself. So Jeffrey was a little suspicious of Dennis. But what are you going to do? You're running a cult. You're a busy man. 1988, of course. So his church has been in operation for about a year. And of course, the sermons become more apocalyptic. End of days. At any point, we're the chosen few. We're going to stand against the inequities of the world. I think I used that words correctly. We're going to take out the non-believers. We alone will be at God's side. We're part of the 144,000 that will ascend to heaven. That type of stuff. So he's saying that stuff, and then he begins predicting, this is kind of badass, honestly, but he begins predicting on May 15th, 1988, demons would show up. Running around. They're going to attack the world. And the only way that we can help fight them off is that we have to attack, not them, not fight the Hellmouth in Sunnydale, Jeffrey Lundgren and his 20 followers have to arm themselves, of course, and attack and take over the Kirtland Temple. So I honestly got to say, I don't think he probably, he probably did have these visions, but I think he really just wanted to get back at his employer for that one. But maybe he saw it as the pinnacle of all earthly religion. It was the first Mormon temple. That's what he wants to do. Now, around the same time, this is a very one of those interesting stories because fate Law enforcement and tragedy keep intersecting each other. Around the same time, before May 15th, see, they have to do this before May 15th to attack the temple, the police start getting tips that, hey, people keep shooting guns off at the Lundgren farm. 
And yeah, it's a farming community. People shoot off guns all the time. But it's not like a... It's like a... It's like you're watching some World War II movie. They're just constantly shooting off rounds. So the police go and talk to him. And they're like, hey, Jeffrey, are you running a cult? Are you running a fully armed and operational cult out here? What? Me? No way, dude. He's like kicking the guns away with his foot. They're going off as he's kicking them. He's like, no, not me. Those are those are other weird noises. I, I ate I ate some bullets for breakfast. The cops leave. Um, and so he gets scared. He realizes, okay, they're on to us. We can't actually lead an armed attack against this church now. So that actually prevented that assault. So that was early in 1988. But then we're coming up to October 10th, 1988. And at this point, like, people are fully aware that he's running a cult. Whether or not he's arming these guys to do anything crazy, all the talk in town is that this guy is bad news. So he's actually excommunicated from the RLDS church. He's He was still, like, a member of that church. I don't think he was going and singing hymns the whole time as he was scoping out. He's like, oh, dude, I could totally break through that window and have this guy throw a grenade through here. I think he was a member in spirit. But that was the day they excommunicated him from that church. Now, his religion was had this belief, and this you do see this belief in other Mormon faiths, and I think in other religious faiths overall, but it's called chiastic interpretation. It's a way of looking at biblical text or holy works and having a mirror image of it. And I was trying to understand it, really, for you guys. I was like really trying to figure out what in the world that meant. It's like how Bible verses could be read the same way backwards and forwards and things like that. So Bruce said in his email, he heard of someone who actually had gone to this guy's house back in the day. Because it wasn't like, from what I understand, it wasn't a completely isolated farmhouse. Like it probably was on the outskirts of town. But according to Bruce's email, he knew someone who had gone there and said there were mirrors all over the corners of the room, little mirrors. So it would make sense because they have this idea of mirror reflection. So the fact that he says he chose Ohio to come to because that has a mirror type thing. It's not like a palindrome, if that's the thing, where it's the same backwards and forward, but you have O-O and then two words in the middle. That's why he chose Ohio. 10-10-1988 was a very, very powerful chiastic date. Because you have all this duality, all this reflection in it. And then that is the day that just happened to be where the RLDS church excommunicated him. That same day, massive thunderstorm. That same day, huge rainbow. So all these events are happening. And Jeffrey turns to his followers and go, the seven seals have been opened. Well, the first one. The other six will be open soon. But this is the beginning of the end of the world. I have been kicked out of this church of man. We are a church of God. And then there was a huge rainstorm. And then a rainbow. And everyone's like, those usually follow each other up. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's on a special day, so the rainbow's extra special. He realizes that the end of the world is coming and they have to be able to secure their place. They can't take the Kirtland Temple, though. There's too many eyes on them. But they still need a blood sacrifice. What's someone they have access to who's expendable? Dennis Avery and his family. Dennis Avery was a devout member of this church. But they lived off the farm. But, you know, they would have functions together. So April 17th, 1989, when they're invited to go to the farm, I don't really think anything of it. It's just going to be a big old party, right? 
You have Dennis, he's 47 years old. His wife, Cheryl, she's 41. And then three daughters, Trina, who's 15, Rebecca, who's 13, and Karen, who's 7. On April 17th, 1989, Lundgren's wife noticed something roll through the field. That morning, the fog was blood red. Just yet another sign that the apocalypse was near. That night, Dennis is invited into the barn. He walks in, and he knows something's up. There's a running chainsaw just sitting on a stump in the corner of the barn. Jeffrey Lundgren and all of his closest associates in this cult are there. The women have all been sent away to go shopping. He walks into the barn. He's immediately assaulted. He's tased. He's trying to fight back. He is subdued. He is bound. His hands are bound behind his back. He sees a massive pre-dug hole. He's thrown into the hole and shot to death. Nobody can hear the gunshot in the farmhouse near the barn because the chainsaw's running. Cheryl is then invited out of the farmhouse into the barn. When she walks in there, they tell her, just go with it. And she is calm. She doesn't react. She sees her husband is already dead in the pit. Without a word, they bind her arms behind her back, throw her into the pit, and shoot her. They then do that same action with their three children. Karen, the seven-year-old, was the last one to be taken to the barn. She was given a piggyback ride out there by a cult member before she meets the same fate as the rest of her family. The pit is covered up with dirt and lime. The sacrifice has been made. Whatever happens now, their place in heaven is secure. That's what they believed. That happened on April 17th. On April 18th, the FBI shows up because they had reports of gunfire. Not that night, but just weirdo cults running around with guns. The police had sent their concerns to the FBI. The FBI happened to show up the day after the murders to talk to the cult members and to look for guns. At one point, the FBI agents actually go into the barn, are walking on the freshly covered up grave of five people, but they don't even know it. They don't see anything suspicious involving firearms. They decide to keep an eye on this group, and then they leave. At this point, all the members of Jeffrey Lundgren's cult realizes they need to get out of the area. Judgment day or not, their judgment day could be coming much quicker. Every member of the cult knew what was going on. Not every member of the cult participated in the murders, but everyone knew this was going to happen to the family. So they all picked up and they went to Missouri, and they began splintering off from there. That happened in April. December 1989, a cult member actually approaches authorities and says, guys, you might want to go check out this barn in Kirtland, Ohio. You're going to find a family of five buried in there. Why did he turn on the cult? Did he have all of a sudden a moral change of heart? Did he figure out that he didn't want to be part of this? No. Jeffrey started banging his wife. Jeffrey wanted a second wife, and he took this man's current wife as Jeffrey's second wife, and something as small as that broke this cult. I mean, it's not small if your wife's getting taken. But if Jeffrey had just been able to keep it in his pants, they probably could have gotten away with it at least for a little bit longer. 
They discover the bodies. Massive manhunt goes out. On the California-Mexican border on January 7, 1990, Jeffrey Lundgren and his wife are arrested. Jeffrey Lundgren's wife and his son and 10 other members were indicted. A lot of them took pleas. Jeffrey got sentenced to death. His wife, his son, and two others got sentenced to life in prison. They weren't going to get out. But a lot of them have been free since 2010. Some of them got like really minor charges because a lot of them were taking plea deals and ratting out Jeffrey and the inner circle. But a lot of the people who are involved in this are free now. Jeffrey, though, was sentenced to death. But he goes, you guys can't kill me. Not because he's some sort of immortal god, because he's the one true man on earth with the connection to God. He says, you can't kill me because I'm too fat. You can't give me a lethal injection because I'm so fat. It would be cruel and unusual. I mean, it's not like you could throw me in a pit and shoot me in the head and then throw a doppelganger of me and shoot him in the head and watch me watch my own family die as I'm dying on top of my body. That's fine. But it would be cruel and unusual to give a fat man a drug that will knock him out and then stop his heart. But the court goes, ah, that's kind of stupid. That's kind of a stupid excuse. Get on a treadmill. We're killing you anyways. He was executed on October 24th, 2006. And an interesting little side note to this whole story. I thought this was fascinating. I was reading this article. I think it was in the Huffington Post. They were interviewing Ronald Luff. He was the second in command of this cult, and he was the second in command during this murder. He's in prison for the rest of his life. There was a quote here from him. It said, quote, A guard once asked me what it was like to be brainwashed. I immediately responded, It's a lot more captivating than this place. Even though he was physically trapped in a prison and couldn't leave, that was more freedom than being brainwashed under the thumb of this cult leader. I thought it was a really fascinating look at being brainwashed and what it's like to be on the other side of that. He realized that now. He's like, wow, I was such a prisoner of my own thoughts. But he did participate in the murder of five people, and he rightfully is serving the rest of his life in prison. You may scoff at the idea that curses exist, or may scoff at the idea that Joseph Smith himself was able to curse a town that has lasted all this time, that it was just coincidence that Kirtland, Ohio has this horrible mass murder, and there is cults everywhere. Mass murders everywhere. It's not unusual. And that's true. I mean, the curse part of the story could be apocryphal. Uh, Joseph Smith may not have the ability to actually curse an entire city for hundreds of years. But I do think there's another interesting takeaway from this. When you have a religious group that's bent on violence and looking for signs that they should commit that violence, There's always something that's left out of that equation. Satan can provide signs as well. The master of lies can also give you signs and symbols to make you think you're on the right path. So when you're looking for those indicators that you are doing the right thing, it's not enough to look for those indicators, but you have to think who would benefit the most from me following this path. I believe they saw the signs. I believe they saw the fog. But I don't believe those came from any sort of divine power. I think they came from someplace darker and more menacing. They came from a source that wanted to see a family annihilated and then even more families destroyed when their loved ones are in prison for committing this act. Darkness can pretend to be a beacon of light 
just to lead you farther down the tunnel until the light shuts off and you are all alone in the darkness. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Take a sip of my soda. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is also our email. Wait, what? DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>